Hello again, everyone. Welcome again to another episode of the Part of Me podcast, the Disability Peer Interview Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us again. This is episode 24 and it's Christmas. So Merry Christmas to everyone. I hope you get lots of presents um, and have a really lovely day. I'll definitely be drinking lots of gin and, and whatever else I can get my hands on, really. Um, today we're joined by another guest um, who asked if she could tell her story um, on the podcast um, and this is Gina. So hello Gina. Hi there and thank you very much for welcoming onto the podcast. Well of course, thank you very much for offering to come on as a guest. So I just want to get straight on with it really. Can you start by telling us who you are and what you do? My name's Gina Gardner and I'm an empowerment coach and a transformational leadership a trainer and facilitator. Oh, that sounds really interesting. Can you just elaborate a bit on that? Um, all of my work and the last 30 years has been about helping people step into their genuine power. Mm-hmm. And when you're in your genuine power, it isn't about diminishing anybody else or making them feel small. It's about owning who you are, having a great relationship with yourself, believing in yourself, um, and liking who you are, wobbly bits and all. Mm. And the transformational leadership, um, as your, uh, your listeners will hear from my story, um, that I've spent uh, most of my adult life developing leadership in one, um, one situation or another. And you know, a big part of my story is that I believe that my disability created a huge opportunity for a gift And the gift that's come out of it has been a unique way of developing leadership. Okay. All right. So, I mean, that was going to be my next question. We are on a disability in the workplace podcast. So could you explain to us, I think that's a really, I can imagine myself completely agreeing with you. So can you explain to us a little bit about your disability and how you use that as a gift? Right. Um, It's quite a complicated story and Mm -hmm. I think it would be worth telling the story because um, your listeners can then see how it's not been just one event, it's been a whole catalogue of things. Um, I was completely able-bodied and I became a teacher at 21. I was promoted very early and was promoted to be the deputy head of of a very large um, junior school aged 28. And I was appointed to be the catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. I was told when I went to the school that the head didn't want to appoint me, he wanted a man. So there's another form of discrimination for you. Absolutely, yeah. Um, And when I went for the interview, he said, if we have a man who is your equal, we will appoint him. But they appointed me, um, and the acting deputy head was not best pleased because she'd been told not to apply because they were going to appoint a man. I was the youngest on the staff bar too, um, and the school was um, was really living in a sort of pre-Second World War way of doing things. Um, this is now 1970, uh, no, 1982 when I was appointed, um, so you'll appreciate that people being there a long time. Absolutely. And so for the first two terms, I worked with the then head, John Hughes, to strategically plan how we were going to move people forward, how we're going to take them with us. And we got to the February half term and I was really pleased to get there because it had been very, very challenging. Um, And I went off skiing and I was a very keen skier. And in those days, um, it was 
the thing to do to have your skis as long as you could have them. And I had a new pair of skis for Christmas and I, I proceeded all through the week to wrap the extra 10 centimetres of ski round my neck. Okay. And on the Thursday, I'd had a really bad fall and I was shaken. And so on the Friday morning, um, I said to my friends, look, I'm not going to go and ski with you. I'm going to go and poddle about on some of the blue and the red runs, um, uh, blue and green runs, and I'm going to get my confidence back. I'll meet you for lunch. I met them for lunch and they said, we found this fabulous run, come with us. And so I said yes, and off we went in the chairlift. Now, your listeners may not be familiar with um, going on chairlifts, but there's this amazing magic which happens as you leave the valley floor and you get further and further away. All of the houses look as if they're, you know, little model houses at the bottom and people look like ants. And Mm -hmm. there's a certain sort of quality to, there is noise, but there's also this amazing silence apart from the shh of people as they ski under the lift. Anyway, we got to the top. I got off. I followed them. And they then skied a little bit, turned the corner, and then I knew something was wrong, even though I was behind them. Okay. They'd taken a wrong turning, and instead of being on the wonderful run that they anticipated, um, we were at the top of the Schindlergratz, which is the most difficult black run in St. Anton. Oh, my gosh. And the only way to get down is to go down the black run. Wow. Now, I'd skied black runs before. I was, uh, you know, I was a pretty good skier, but this was a monster. Now, again, your listeners may not be familiar with the principle of moguls. Moguls Mm. are where the weather has carved out the snow um, and it leaves lumps. So in the night they freeze and they become, um, if they're small, they're like cobbles and it's like skiing over cobbles. But these were six foot tall, lump lump after lump. And the only way you could ski was to ski, turn on the top of a mogul, slide down, and then ski in between the moguls and then do the same coming back. Oh, my gosh, it sounds horrific. It wasn't good, I have to say. (laughs) So we started down, and I managed the first third of the the slope fine, and then I left it too late to turn, and I had a nasty fall. And it took me about 20 minutes to reach all of the others, and they were sitting on a mogul, each of them, like an elf sitting on a mushroom. (laughs) So I went and joined them, and I sat on my mushroom, if you like, my mogul. Yeah. It was a brilliantly hot, sunny day, and the top of my mogul gave way. <gasps> oh, my god! I found myself falling. Um, what I remember is um, a scream and then everything going black. Wow. And I have no idea how long it took for people to ski down to me, but they, the people I was with said it took them about half an hour to get down to me. I didn't, well, the one good thing about that is that by between the two falls, I'd skied most of the of the slopes. There wasn't much left to go. And I was determined I wouldn't have the blood wagon. Um, and so with their help, I managed to get back to the hotel. And the next day we travelled home, went straight to um, accident and emergency. And I was told I got a bad concussion and that I had trapped a nerve in my neck. Mm-hmm. To cut... As I say, it's a complicated story. Mm. I went back to school um, after a few days, and five weeks later, 
I got the okay from the medics that I could go. I was the deputy leader on a Boroski party with 150 10 and 11 year olds. And this time we were going to Switzerland and I wasn't quite right. I still was using a, a collar around my neck and, um, but I, I'd been told that it was okay to go. We'd got a doctor with us. And all through the week, I became more and more like Quasimodo. And by the last Friday, I, as we kept brought the children back to the hotel, I said to my colleagues, I'm going to have to go and lie down. And within a very short time, I found myself to be paralysed down one side. Oh, wow. I didn't want to frighten the children. And so I just had to wait until somebody came. Yeah. And it, the time seemed forever. As soon as somebody arrived or hell broke loose and I was carted off to hospital. Yeah, yeah. Incidentally, one of my colleagues packed for me because we were going home the next day. They packed three novels. They packed toothpaste but no toothbrush. Really and, and no knickers. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> Very different set of priorities to mine. I have Absolutely, to say. yeah, yeah. Um, so I was in hospital there a few days, and then flown home uh, by air ambulance, and then in hospital for a while. And it took me until uh, well into well to the end of May to get back to school. And although I could walk, my mobility wasn't great, and all I did was school and sleep. Mm -hmm. So by the time I got to the summer holidays. Um, I thought, I've got six weeks now, I can rest and recuperate. But that wasn't to be. Two weeks into the holiday, I got a phone call very, very early in the morning to say that my, uh, and it was from my head teacher's wife, she'd just found him dead in bed. Oh, my gosh. And so instead of having a rest, I had helped her with the funeral. I was letting the staff know, letting the parents know, letting the authority know. Um, and so... Um, I was acting head, and three months later, I was appointed the permanent head. Wow. And I was determined that the children would get the very best educational um, opportunity, and the same for my staff. Mm. And in a sense, the decision then for me was that what I would do, if I couldn't do it properly, then I wouldn't do it at all. Mm -hmm. So my determination was that the school would do well. Now, for the next few years, every time uh, they kept on investigating why my mobility was getting worse, why I, I was so fatigued, why I had so much pain, um, and I basically did school um, and I did sleep. Um, every time they did a test, I fell apart, my mobility got worse. Um, and so by 1989, no, 1987, I had to use a wheelchair to get around school, but I didn't use it in my office, in the hall or the classrooms. I could physically get into them. Mm -hmm. But I resisted going into a wheelchair big time. And the crunch came in the school holidays when I and some friends went to Wisley Gardens, and I love gardens. And I could only manage to get from the car to the kiosk in the car park. And we could have hired a wheelchair, but I decided in my stubborn way that I wouldn't. And I sat in the car park for two hours while they went round the gardens mm. thinking, what are you doing, woman? Why mm. are you cutting your nose off to spite your face? And I was really worried what people would think. Yeah. Um, but I was on an experimental drug therapy, which went very badly wrong. And the next day went into hospital and was there for four months. 
And when I came out, I had to use a wheelchair around school. As I said, I, I didn't use it in, in classrooms at that time. I then decided to keep well away from doctors because every time they touched me, I fell apart. <laughs> and that's all very well until 1996. It was three weeks before the end of the summer term. I was in the garden and I sneezed and I felt something significant go in my back. Oh my gosh. I got to the end of term thinking it's just end of term and my back aches and I've got sciatica. And for me, I was used to pain all the time. Um, but it, I went to get up from assembly. I had a, a high um, chair um, and I went to get up and I my legs wouldn't hold me. And I was taken to hospital and found to have a, um, a very bad ruptured disc and they operated. And um, those days you spent three days doing nothing, you're very flat and, and still. And then when the physio went to get me up, when I put my left foot to the floor, I just fainted. And that didn't go. Mm. Um, I became a very good stalk. I had to use a wheelchair around school um, because I couldn't walk. I had a, a wheelchair upstairs, a stair lift, and then a wheelchair downstairs. And it took me 18 months to manage to walk to the bottom of my very, very small garden. Wow. And so I thought, I'm on the up now, and things are improving. And we got to the last day of the summer term. There's something very significant for me about the last day, the last bit of the summer term. And I wasn't feeling very well. I got home after the term had finished, and then I was physically sick. And as I was being sick, something went in my back and I dropped it another disc. Oh, my gosh. I was rushed into hospital. They removed the disc. Um, and I then had failed back surgery syndrome again. And now I couldn't, I couldn't stand at all. I, my, I couldn't hold my own weight. Wow. I was in hospital for eight weeks. And four days after I came out of hospital, I was back at school. The new neurosurgeon, five months later, said to me, I think we might talk about you going back to school for a couple of hours a week. And I just laughed. And people have often said to me, well, why did you rush back? Why didn't you recuperate? If I was at home, I live on my own, and the carer hadn't let, filled the kettle and put a cup down, mm -hmm. a tea bag in it, I couldn't make myself a cup of tea. Mm. I had daytime television and I could read. Or I could go into school, I could use my mouse, I could use my brain and my hands, and I could do something that I loved and was making a real positive difference. And there were people around who could lift me things if I couldn't get them. Yeah. And so for me, it was a no-brainer. Yeah. So that's 1998. Um, and for the next... Um, six years I continued to um, operate as the head teacher but my health was failing I was working a, um, a 13 14 15 hour day on a regular basis I did lots of, of roles outside school to bring a budget into school and to prove to myself I suppose I could do it keep the school at cutting edge um, and I was given the ultimatum by the neurologist um, in 2004 if you don't stop what you're doing, you will be completely housebound and you'll be unable to drive. I had a heavily adapted car. And I took the very difficult decision that I was going to, to leave. 
And then um, I had an internal spinal stimulator fitted in 2000, late 2004, which at that time was very, very new. It's like an internal TENS machine. Okay. So the wires go into my spine and the batteries in my tummy and I turn it on and off with what looks like a TV uh, remote control. Okay. I can now walk short distances. I don't use a wheelchair in the house or garden. If we go to a pub or a restaurant, I can manage to walk from um, the car into uh, the building. Yeah. Um, I'm not great at standing. Um, I find it difficult to walk on uneven ground uh, because I don't really feel the bottom of my feet properly. Mm-hmm. But I can do a lot, lot more than I have been able to do for years. So there am I. I've I've retired from school. Um, at that time, I mean, it's it, it's now 2019. It's taken me uh, 15 years to walk as far as I can, and it was a very, wow. very, very slow process. Um, but what I recognised is the gift of my disability, um, and it may sound strange, was I couldn't physically get into the classrooms. I couldn't. Um, I couldn't get through the door of most of them, and even if I could get through the door, I couldn't get round them. Mm. So I had to create a different way of ensuring excellence, of empowering the staff to take responsibility for their own performance, rather than having me standing behind them and saying, well, that's all right, and that's not. Um, We created a shared language around, you know, what does excellence look like in the context of each of the different Um, aspects of school and it was incredibly successful and we were on the best 100 schools in the in England twice while I was ahead with one of the first beacon schools worked with dozens of other schools and hundreds of other teachers and I know that at that point knew very well that this stuff worked and I'm I'm honest enough with myself to know that if I'd been able-bodied the chances are I'd have been too interfering Mm -hmm that I would not have the necessity of having to take a step back and find other ways of becoming a much better listener, of mm-hmm. becoming far more empathetic, arose out of becoming um, completely wheelchair-bound and always then being on the peripheral and having to look in rather than being in the thick of it. Yeah. So I've left school and I think, what now? I know I'm no more liking the idea of daytime TV than I was previously. And I thought, well, I've done all of this work with leadership with the National College. I was an advisor for the government. And I worked in a whole range of, of uh, roles, not all at the same time, mm-hmm. but you'll appreciate I was ahead for 21 years. Absolutely, so. yeah. Um, and so I took myself off to do a research project across industries. Were the issues facing them in terms of of leadership and developing leadership the same as they were in education? Mm -hmm. And of course they were. So I wrote my first couple of books. um, And then uh, between uh, 2005 and 2009, I generally work, I've always done life coaching and I've been a qualified uh, life coach for for much longer than than that. but I worked, the other part of my work was working with corporates, doing coaching and training, leadership training, uh, creating bespoke uh, training programs and then delivering them. 
Um, and that was great until the recession hit. Mm. And in one week, I lost all of my contracts. Wow. Um, because organisations just cut their, slashed their budget. Yeah. Now, by this time, I was already doing work for as a lecturer at Essex University um, around a, a huge range of aspects of leadership, but as a guest lecturer. And they would commission me to go and work with individual organisations. Um, these weren't the big corporates. These were anything from um, five employees to perhaps 150 employees. Um, and I'd go in and I'd, I'd work with them, sort something out, and then they'd invite me back a few months later. And I was, I became very aware that these were all of things which could be avoided. So when I lost all those contracts, what I started to do was to work with businesses um, and work with them on a regular basis, always with the senior decision makers, mm -hmm. and depending on the business, sometimes with the whole staff, sometimes just with the managers, sometimes just with an in other you know, individuals. Yeah. I still do that today. Um, but I became more and more aware that there were so many people who were either finding it a struggle to lead other people because they'd been appointed as great salespeople or great technicians. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Or they were on the receiving end of poor leadership yeah. and people were stressed and so on. And I had this burning sense of purpose that I needed to get to more people. So two years ago, I started to create Genuinely You, my first business, which I still operate, is Gina Gardner Associates. And so now I've written more books. Um, the latest is Thriving, Not Surviving, The Five Secret Pathways of Happiness, Success and Fulfillment. Mm -hmm. And that's my second number one international bestseller. Um, and that's the core of the personal, thank you, mm -hmm. the personal and spiritual development program that I have. And I'm just about to launch an enlightened leadership program which works on the basis you have to lead yourself first. Mm -hmm. You are the common denominator, you are responsible for every aspect of you, um, and so on. Mm -hmm. All of those principles and many of the strategies were created back at school. Yeah. The other thing that I think is relevant to the story is um, after I finished with Headship, I decided I wanted to, to know more about neuro-linguistic programming. NLP, which basically means using words to change beliefs and behaviours. Um, and having trained and become an NLP coach uh, and a master practitioner, I went off to to look at as many people as I could using NLP. And I ended up at the Excel Centre in London with a guy called Anthony Robbins, which many people may be familiar with. Yeah. Exactly the best paid, most known a motivational speaker in the world. You want to be coached by him? It's over a million dollars a year. Oh, only a million dollars. Okay. A million dollars. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Brilliant. Um, he's six foot seven. He's bigger than life. And I went, and I have to say, I was fairly cynical about this guy. You know, I thought it's going to be lots and lots of hype, and you know, not a lot of substance. But I was wrong. Mm -hmm. And. There was a, a, a situation that occurred there, but which for me has been absolutely pivotal in terms of my beliefs about myself and what I'm capable of. So in the morning of the first day, he was talking about a course in California. And I thought, oh, I like the sound of that, but 
I wouldn't be able to manage it because I haven't got an electric wheelchair. At that time, I didn't have an electric travel chair. I have now. Um, And how would I manage on my own? And it's a different country. And and although I travelled here quite widely helping other people, I had a driver who took me from home to where I was going and waited for me and took me back. Yeah. Now, on that first day, we did the fire walk. Now, your listeners may not be familiar with a fire walk, but that's where there are hot coals along, uh, uh, I suppose, 30 feet, and you walk with bare feet across hot coals. Okay, I have heard of it, but yeah. But without getting burnt, because you're in the right mindset. Yeah. Now, bear in mind this is 2006, so my mobility is still very limited, and I had somebody either side of me supporting me, and I managed the, the walk, and I was ecstatic. And as I sat back down in my wheelchair, I was really chuffed, Mm. but I looked as I was sitting and facing the next person coming. He was a double amputee. He had no, nothing below the knee. He tipped himself up onto his hands and he walked on those hot coals on his hands. Wow. And I thought to myself, if he can do that, then I can go to America and I can Start, I can do that course. Yeah, I booked my ticket and I booked my flight. I went off to America and since then I've done all Anthony Robbins training. Uh, trainings. I'm a, I've become a senior a leader. I've travelled all over for work and for pleasure. That guy has no idea of what a difference he made mm-hmm. in my life. And because I share that story with other people's lives. And it fits so well with because... I believe disability is a metaphor for life, okay? Okay. My legs don't work very well, Mm -hmm. but I can get into my wheelchair and I can wheel off. I still use a wheelchair to go out into town or to go on holiday or wherever. I have to say, always on full speed. Yeah, me too. Yeah. (laughs) But if you don't believe you're good enough, if you believe you're too short, too tall, not rich enough, not enough time, that you're not good enough, those limiting beliefs stay with you and go with you wherever you go. And they keep your world very, very small. But if you believe you can, you're halfway there. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, you know, it, your listeners may be familiar with Roger Bannister. He was the guy that ran the first four-minute mile. Mm-hmm. The medics at the time thought if you ran that fast, you'd die that you wouldn't get enough oxygen. And if you look at the footage of that race, there are people in white coats who are holding the oxygen bottles in the the vain hope that they would be able to resuscitate him. Now, that he ran a four-minute mile, I think, is amazing. But what, for me, is even more amazing is within a month, 30 other people had done the same. Mm, mm. What? Because they believed in possible. Yeah, because they saw somebody else doing it and it egged them on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think if for those people who are listening, if you're disabled or you're the carer of somebody who's disabled, I would urge you think dream big. You know, becoming a great problem solver, I think, is one of the skill sets of somebody who's disabled. Would I you agree? Absolutely agree. A hundred percent agree. Absolutely. And the other For thing a lot of the reasons that you pointed out in your story. Um, and, you know, I think a great sense of humour is also incredibly helpful. I think so. I think so. So, so I mean, I, I, 
you know, I, I almost 100% agree with you, but I do want to ask you a question. So when there are those memes, for example, that say things like the only disability is a bad attitude, what is your take on them? I think that's a load of rubbish. Okay, why? I think a bad attitude is an element, mm-hmm. but it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. Our beliefs are installed in us when we're, we're, for the most part, when we're young. Parents who... Um, say you're silly or you're clumsy or you can't do that or I wasn't any good at it and and you're just like me Um, and parents will and I think my experience as a head I've got experience of disability in a whole range of ways one myself secondly as a head um, encouraging parents to give their children the opportunity to to do things and at times take a calculated risk mm-hmm. always calculated risk absolutely um but not to keep them smothered yeah yeah in the third way my sister sadly uh, um, had um two children with a, a genetic disorder where they uh, progressed normally till seven and then they deteriorate to be pro- pro- profoundly disabled and she had both boys before they knew of this disability. So I've lived with disability in, in a whole range mm. of ways. And I, I think that your beliefs about yourself, I mean, you've only got to watch something like the Paralympics and hear everybody's got a story, everybody's got a story. And the, what, yes, having a, a, a positive attitude, focusing on what you can do rather than what you can't is a huge, huge benefit but also what your underlying beliefs are, what support you have. Because if you have got a really positive attitude and you've got no support, you are at a lesser advantage than those people who've got support that encourages and- Opens doors. Expects of you. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments I had with many parents with, because I suppose I was in a wheelchair, my school, had many children who came through it who had one disability or another and I would say to the parents you know if you're not careful you're going to doubly disadvantage Mm. in a way and my sister was the deputy of a special school and her view of those children was you know they've got to be the best they can be they've got to find a way of fitting into society Um, and you've got to expect that from Mm. them you can't you can't smother them and baby them and, oh, what can you expect? You can't expect any better because that's that's where they will aspire to. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm absolutely passionate about people recognising that the only limitation in terms of what goes on in their head is how, how they operate. But I absolutely accept that it's so much easier when you have people around you who have high expectations, who fight your corner uh, for you mm-hmm. and with you. And sometimes that's giving you a kick up the bum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. I think the, I, I, I 100% agree with what you're saying. I think the only thing I would add to that is that whilst we're supporting people to, 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 to challenge themselves and be the best we can be, 
um, that we have to be mindful that there are barriers that are present, presented that stop people physically and emotionally and mentally being able to achieve. But I know that's what you were saying, but I just wanted to point that out to our listeners as well. Absolutely. And I'm not making light of that. Yeah. I am talking about within the context of what though each of us is capable of. Yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. But I think it, it's important to make sure that our, my listeners understand that because the, one of the reasons why I find that meme so dangerous, the only attitude is a bad attitude, is because as a society, I think we like to categorise people. And so we see the Paralympics on TV and we see the Paralympians, you know, leaping over six foot fences and their wheelchairs and all of those. And then we walk down the street and say, well, you disabled person, why can't you do that? You're just being lazy. And I think it's important to reiterate as you you very well, uh, as you very eloquently did that no matter how much somebody wants to do something, sometimes there are barriers presenting them from doing it. And, you know, even now, and I've, you know, my disability started in 1983, there are times when, you know, people look at me and think, you've got it pretty well taped. And I am very fortunate that I have a very positive attitude. I focus on what I can do. There are still days, and excuse the language, which are fairly bloody. Mm. Yeah. I mean, my particular vet noir is hotels who say that they're accessible. And then when you get there, there's two planks up to eight foot window. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the only way to get the wheelchair in. Yeah, the rooms that are accessible and you can't get the wheelchair in. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there are there are huge huge frustrations and there are limitations. I absolutely accept that. But I'm, I'll tell you, if I can ex- give you a story of of, of a, a, a experience, please do. Because in a way, it shows what I mean. Um, we had a little boy who came uh, to our school and he had brittle bones. And when he came to us, he was in a perspex cot. Wow. Okay. So he came from the infants and he came to us and he was on a perspex cot with legs. Now, this was a bright boy, mm-hmm. had a good brain, his mouth worked, his brain worked, his eyes worked. But physically, he was very, very limited. And I said to his his parents, we've got to find a way of getting him mobile. We've got to find a way that he can actually have eye contact with people where he's not got people looking down. Yeah, yeah. And they said, but he might break his bones. And I said, well, we need to look for a a way where we can minimise that risk Mm -hmm. But my belief is, and I want you to think about it, is if you keep him in a peer perspex cot, he will never, ever be able to live a whole life yeah. and be independent. And so we started very gently. We explored wheelchairs. He was in a foam container in his wheelchair. I have to tell you, he was blooming lethal. <laughs> he was in his electric wheelchair he used to whiz around the place like a lunatic. And I, you know, the fact that he got freedom. Exactly, yeah, 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 exactly. He learnt to be independent. He yeah. worked for a local authority, he had his own flat, he got married, he had a baby. Excellent, yeah. But he would not have done any of those things if the parents, and bless their hearts, they worked with us so, because the first thing was that mum wouldn't leave him. Mm. And we had to wean mum and say, 
right, you go and sit in the office and leave him in the classroom. I've got a member of staff who will be with him. Mm-hmm. We'll look after him. And gradually she had confidence that we weren't being silly about it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And this was done in a very measured way over the four years he was with us. Yeah. But he had an independent life. And for me, that exemplifies what I want. For people who have a a physical or a mental disability, it's how can you be enabled to make the best of what you have? Absolutely. And how can you be empowered to believe that you can make the best that you have? And that's where it starts for me. Yeah. Because if you don't believe it, it's never going to happen, is it? But I think I think I completely agree with you. But I think that it's so rare. I mean, it would have been rare when you were a teacher, but it's still rare now that in education there is that um, there's that space for teachers to be able to help children in that way and help, as you say, the parents and the carers in that way. I agree with you, and I think it's incredibly sad. Mm. And as um, the curriculum has become narrower and narrower. And as the budgets have become tighter and tighter, I think it's got more and more difficult. Yeah. I, I can only feel for parents because there's not the support when they've got the children at home and the kids aren't getting the support in school. And I think my, I think it's criminal. I agree. And parents, a lot of parents are being told from day dot, oh, I'm really sorry, your child is disabled. Um, it's all over for you now, your life is over, your child's life is over. So even from day dot, they're not getting the opportunity to think in a positive manner about what, you know, how their children might be able to succeed and lead an independent, and I say it in quotes, because what is normal? Normal life or average life that they would live otherwise. I would say to parents who are told, oh, don't expect too much of your children, take no notice. Yeah. I agree. Absolutely. These medics don't know. Yeah. And if, if you work so long as you're sensible about it and that you don't create a sense of failure for your child, um, but you support your child in having a go and, and keeping going at having a go, um, then your child will, will blossom. Yeah. And I think it's important. But it's true of able-bodied children too. Well, it is, yeah. It's not just a disability thing, is it? It's an encouragement thing. It's just with knobs on. If they, if they have a disability, then mm. of course it's harder. Yeah, absolutely. And then society and um, stereotypes and, pre- and um, assumptions are against you. Yeah. Um, so I know I have a list of questions, but I would like to carry on with what we're talking about. So I have a question that's out of the blue, which will my, my listeners will know this happens all the time. Um, so what do you think of the special, in quotes, special schools and specialist education for disabled children? Right. I think it, this is very context driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's two contexts, probably more. One is the very specific needs of that child. And there are um, many children for whom mainstream school, particularly secondary, is simply not suitable. Mm -hmm. Um, I went with a friend who has a child who's on the autistic spectrum, who's really struggling in secondary school because they're not making the accommodation. Yeah. So he's gone from a class of 28 where everybody knew him and he was safe into a school of 2000. Wow. Where wow. he can't cope with changing lessons. Yeah. Uh, that 
people pick on him because he he does come across as a bit different um and he's really really struggling now i don't think the right place for him would be special school but i do think there's need huge accommodations that need to go on mm. and i think to my, my you know these days to go into special school there's got to be very severe needs and what i found when i cuz I, I used to go in and and uh, work with my sister's school after i left headship and do some training there um and it was a fabulous school and what struck me is that children who came in having failed year after year after year were given the opportunity to raise their confidence to uh, to recognize that they were valued but i would say i think the children that did well there were either those who were profoundly disabled and needed a huge amounts of equipment and support and care or they were those who had significant learning mm-hmm. problems where the the normal curriculum was so far removed from what was right for them that mainstream wasn't going to work so taking your example of the um your friend with the autistic son who went into specialist education because the school no, no he's he's in mainstream he's in mainstream He's in mainstream in a school of two over two over two thousand. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought he went then to specialist no, education. No, no, he's, he's, in he's in mainstream and struggling to get the school to actually give him the support that he needs. Okay, okay. So, do you? I mean, I think you've just answered my next question. Do you not think that that's more to do with the inclusion of the school and the education that goes on for those teachers rather than his needs himself? He's high functioning. Mm-hmm. He could cope with the curriculum um but the sort of thing that sets him off is if the class is noisy absolutely yeah so if he's with a teacher that's really structured who's got good discipline he thrives yeah. if he's with a teacher that hasn't he falls apart yeah. and then there's a problem yeah so inevitably and that's this is such a complex thing isn't it because in in a primary school they're either with a teacher that works or they're not mm-hmm. in there are so many teachers yeah six teachers in a day but if he has a teacher in the morning where he's he's triggered then it's much more difficult for the next to calm teachers. down yeah yeah now i get it yeah. yeah it's i mean you know that's an example of how sad it is isn't it because it's nothing to do with him it's to do with the level of training and the level of awareness and sometimes even the level of empathy and i do understand there's another side of that that teachers don't have time they don't have the resources and they're not supported in the right way i do understand all of that as well but it, it's those things that are stopping that child succeeding not him um so i'm sure you have come across a social model of disability yes um stating that society that creates barriers for disabled people we're not disabled by our bodies or yes. our limitations but we're disabled by the society who creates those limitations for yes. us and that that's a pristine example of the social model not working or yes. more over the medical model being in play um, and, and that, that is what i found that's been replicated time and time again mm. over the land. Yeah. Throughout, I mean, when I go into the delivered training, I I explain the social model of disability and I it's tangible to grasp the tangible things. So it's it's the tangible things like the physical side. Yes. So ramps instead of um yeah. stairs and so on and such. 
but your example is a, a great example of how it's not just about um, the environment. It's about people and their attitudes um, and how people can make a difference and include people. But I want to go back quickly to your story that you were telling in the beginning. It was such a, I don't like the word inspiring for many reasons, um, but I think your story is one that inspires empowerment, inspires people to think differently. What struck me first about your story is there were so many events that led to your disability and how each time you jumped up and started again, you, know, you fell down a massive um, crevice and most people, including myself, would be, oh, well, that's it then, isn't it? You got up and you, you were like, you walked back to the hotel um, and you, you know, you, you took the help that was there, but you refused the, the easiest help, probably. Um, and then happened again and again and again. I just think that's an incredible story. And, and how you said about, you know, that, that supported you to develop problem solving skills. It's so true that um, in business, I think one of the biggest assets that disabled people bring to the workplace is their ability to problem solve. Because as a disabled person, we problem solve on a daily basis. I would say from the minute I open my eyes to the minute I close them, I'm problem solving all yeah. the time. Um, and so I think your story and this entire conversation has done really well to really eloquently highlight um, the barriers that are presented by disabled people, but also how disabled people can overcome those barriers with a bit of support and a bit of encouragement and a bit of self-belief. So I'd like to say thank you very much. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure. And as well as all my other listeners, I'm sure the, the uh, as well as all my other guests, sorry, I'm sure the listeners will have really enjoyed um, listening to this podcast. Um, one more question I wanted to ask you. Obviously, this is a business podcast. So the majority of people that listen to this are managers, line managers, people that are supporting disabled people in the workplace, people that want to understand how disabled people um, can benefit the workplace, either as employers or as employees or as, or as customers. So listening to your story, I think it's very obvious, but people might be thinking, well, how that's a really good story, but how is that relevant to business? Um, so are, are there any kind of, um, is there any way that you can sum up how this is relevant to people within business? Well, let's separate that out in terms of uh, people who work for you first and we'll come to the customers in yes, a minute. Yes, perfect. Um, but if I had, um, had a different experience and that the beginning, at the beginning after that initial accident, I had given up or I'd given up after any of those things. My skill base, my experience, my um, my take on life, which I, um, has helped thousands of people, would have been lost. Mm. Um, not only in terms of, of the one, you know, actually I help you, but also that through that, um, other people have learned and then that's a bit like the stone in the pond going the ripple out I know that for example the local authority um, I was the only head who had a physical disability that was a significant um, and part of that was working with them and access to work who were very helpful in providing some of the funding um, in it. terms of and remember we're talking about the um, the 80s here mm -hmm. so we're talking about 
to a large extent, I'd like to think a different world, but actually, as I say it, I know it isn't. Um, the, the looking for ways to, to, to find solutions. And they didn't just help me. So, for example, I couldn't manage the door and the wheelchair. So there were electric doors put um, in places around school. Parents would come and say, oh, it's fantastic. I don't have to fight with the pram. I don't have to fight with the buggy. You know, people who um, had a, a stick or a crutch would say, that makes such a lot of difference. Mm. And I think it's easy to think of, you know, very significantly disabled people and think about what you have to do for them. But they don't actually think that there are lots of people who are not disabled at all, but actually carrying heavy boxes or whatever, where, you know, simple things can make a big difference. And I think it's about how do we look at society differently? How do we create something which is practical, looks good, and helps the vast majority rather than just honing in on people who have a disability? Yeah. Um, and I think doing that, everybody would benefit. Um, you know, you go, and the, the, you go into a, a hotel or into an organisation and the counter's very high. Well, okay, if you're in a wheelchair, that's a pain. But if you're four foot two, it's a pain mm. too. Um, so I think this is about just thinking about how do you help people make the best of the yeah. situation, whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and I think if you're a, an employer, if you the more variety you have in perspective in um, people's experiences in people's capacity to listen to share to work together the better and I think well certainly my own experience is that the capacity to listen and to empathize has hugely grown as a result of my disability and people who've worked with me um, to help me I mean um, and have said it's also impacted on their capacity to empathize and to see things mm -hmm. from a different mm -hmm. perspective. Okay, brilliant. Now, talking about your customers, I don't know what the figures are, but you probably will. How many disabled people there are in this country? There are just over 14 million disabled people, including obviously disabled children in the UK. So that's a huge chunk of society who are buying public and it makes no sense at all to ignore them yeah and there are lots and lots of gaps in the market for people who had a bit of ingenuity where you could make a killing um rather than you know just um what we are offered in terms of disabled aids and just clothes for the disabled and mm -hmm. um, uh, activities for the disabled and it's time that somebody started to have a much more creative look at those Agreed. We're nearly at the end of our podcast episode today. Is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know before we finish? I'd like to say, um, if you're interested, then um, on the website, which is um, the usual HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash genuinely, then a hyphen, then the word you.com, you'll find lots and lots of free resources. Brilliant. If you are a leader or a manager and you want to lead in an enlightened way, we're launching the Enlightened Leadership Program next month. If you're interested in personal spiritual development, there's, there's stuff there for you as well. Uh, and I would urge people to go and have a look. 
so that's genuinely-u.co um, and go and have a look at the website. Okay, and everybody, I will stick Gina's um, link to her website on the bottom so you don't have to write this down. It will be on the podcast, well, it will be on the episode. Um, so you'll be able to type it in or click on the link. Uh, thank you very much for your time, Gina. I've really oh, enjoyed talking to you this pleasure. afternoon. Thank you so much for having me on, and thank you for all the work you do. We need people like you making a difference. Of course, and I'm definitely I'm going to download your book immediately. Is it on Audible? Uh, yes, it is. Oh, brilliant. Excellent. Um, have a really nice Christmas and a Happy New Year, everyone, and I'll speak to you all soon. Bye. Bye-bye now.